0: This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. We are very excited to partner with the Southern Utah Science Cafe out of Dixie State University in St. George, Utah. Today's show is from the Science Cafe and pertains to the science of fire. It is a two-part series covering an open panel discussion on the impact of wildfires on the land and its inhabitants.
1: So I'd like to introduce our panelists. In the right corner, sorry, your left corner, uh, is Dr. Greg Melton. So, Greg is a uh, geology professor at DSU, uh, and he studies the impacts of wildfires on uh, landslide potential and landslide loading. Um, He is also a firefighter as well, um, and is with the Hurricane Valley Fire District. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. Um, In the center corner, if you can have a center corner, as uh, Mike Scaife, uh, Mike is with the Washington County Habitat Conservation Plan and has been involved in the rehabilitation and, and uh, managing the impacts from the Red Cliffs fire that swept through the north side of town a couple of years ago. And then in the right corner is Jason Whipple. Uh, he is the retired captain from St. George Fire Department and actually worked here when it was the fire station. So, Jason is currently the director for the Washington County Emergency Services uh, and is also the commander of the bomb squad and member of the SWAT team. So, with that, we're going to have each of our panelists just uh, present a brief fact about science or interesting uh, fact about science, or about fire, and then we'll open it up for discussion. So, any questions you have about science, uh, the science of fire, just go ahead and ask. Thank you. We'll start with Greg.
2: Okay, so um, I don't know if you know this about firefighters, but we are storytellers. big time. we love we love bragging about the crazy that we've seen uh, or the intense. Um, so I'm actually going to tell a little story about uh, an experience. I was on a I was deployed to a wildfire. This was in Colorado. Um, really high elevation, so we were actually above uh, I want to say we were above. 10,000 feet. Uh, South Park? You guys know South Park, the show? It was actually yeah. based on, on where we were uh, in Colorado. We actually went to the high school for a little bit. Where Anyway, uh, so there we are, 2,000 feet. We're up in the mountains, um, and there was a wildfire there. And every day um, around mid-afternoon, we always had this thunderstorm cell kind of move into our area and um you know they would the safety guys would would pull us off the line and and just wait for the storm to kind of pass because we don't want people out in the trees when there's a lot you know lightning and thunder and stuff like that and plus the winds get super erratic and it's not it's not a super safe uh situation um but this one particular day we got pulled off uh and we sat there and watched this huge storm cell come come rolling in and right as it came over the top of the wildfire Um, the convection the air convection that was coming off of that wildfire actually tipped kind of tipped the whole cell on its side and created a tornado which is unheard of at 10,000 feet okay in the mountains that's that's almost impossible Um, but yeah so there we were sitting in our trucks uh, watching a wildfire huge hailstones coming down on us and then this tornado comes down and touches ground in the middle of of the wildfire um so that was fun yeah, but it got me thinking a lot about the science of it so there you go like i yeah i just thought about the science of that a lot and it's pretty cool so
3: all right cool that's gonna be uh it's gonna be tough to top that um so i have uh, one season uh, Um, of being a firefighter under my belt I'm not probably the fire expert that these guys are sitting on each side of me but the reason I was invited in today was to talk about um, some of the effects that we've seen of wildfire on our Mojave Desert Um, we've kind of been caught in this fire cycle that we've seen like every 15 to 20 years of fires, large fires burning through the Red Cliffs Desert Reserve. As many of you were probably around back in 2020, in the summer, um, we had about 12,000 acres worth of uh, de- uh, critical desert tortoise habitat um, that burned in the Turkey Farm Road and Cotton or uh, Cottonwood Trail fires, and so. Um, A lot of my job deals with protecting the Mojave Desert tortoise. As the biologist for the Washington County Habitat Conservation Plan, we work with, uh, we manage the Red Cliffs Desert Reserve. And so it's a huge obstacle, a huge challenge for us trying to figure out how to best deal with the aftermath of these fires that are often fueled by invasive grasses such as cheatgrass, red brome. Um, We've seen more of a proliferation of invasive mustard species lately as well. And so um, a lot of what I do has to do with just, how are we gonna protect the remaining habitat we have what are we trying to do to address those things? What are some of the challenges we're gonna to continue to face? How might we start to bring some of the habitat back um, in the future? And, and you know, habitat loss is the number one threat uh, facing the desert tortoise. And in our area, more specifically, um, it has been that threat of wildfire and, you know, what, one last thing I'll add is that, you know, I think we're all, most of us are aware that in cer- certain ecosystems, fire um, has a really important role, a critical role. And so when we talk about fires in the Mojave Desert, it almost sounds like we're demonizing fire in a way. But, you know, and that's not my intention. That just happens to be the scope of, you know, what my work is, um, dealing more with desert ecosystems. Uh, but of course, fire does have an important role, especially like in more like timber ecosystems and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of I think that's why I was invited in today is to talk about desert tortoise habitat, Mojave Desert uh, aftermath of some of these large wildfires that we've seen.
4: Yeah, yeah, I can't top any of that. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a. Uh, emergency manager and a bomb guy and a SWAT guy. So I don't have the smarts to be considered a science, science guy. So um, but really when uh, in our jobs um, the, the science portion of it is, a, is a really a big uh, a big driving force. And you know on my side where I've been mostly on the response side of we're going to run in we're going to put the fire out. We're going to you know do that kind of stuff and we don't care yeah what it takes to put the fire out you know it's it's a little bit of a shift in our in our thinking when we start looking at the science behind it and looking at what the the cause and effect of one the fire what the fire's doing and two what our suppression activities are doing and you know those are all things that we kind of take into account and really, in my job, uh, a lot of that is taking all of those all of those elements and bringing them together uh, at an early stage so we can help to get the, uh, get the land back to where it needs to be and, and rehabilitated and, and still put out the fire in a way that's, that's healthy. And that's kind of a, a weird way of saying it, but there is a healthy way of doing this. And, and it does co- take cooperation from the big brains and then the small brains like us that we can, we can work these things together and, and come out to the, the best effect that we can have and you know, I'll tell you, I've, I've learned a ton um, on these fires uh, about environments and about um, you know, the good things that we can do with the fire, but also you know, the bad things we can do by uh, our suppression activities. So um, it's, it's a good balance. And so that's kind of where my science connection is with this.
1: Well, thanks, guys. That's awesome. Uh, do we have any questions, anything you guys want to know about? Yes, see you in the front.
3: how do we deal with the invasive grasses? So that's a question that we, you know, between my agency with Washington County, other agencies that we work with for the management of the reserve, including the BLM and Snow Canyon State Park, that's an issue that we're all grappling with. I mean, it's it's really a challenge, um, you know, especially, Depending on the timing that we get precipitation in the winter some years. It's just horrible horrible just a carpet of cheatgrass out there, you know, and You know the mojave desert hundred years ago didn't have to contend with these huge fires sweeping through the landscape um, So what some of the things that we're doing we're, we are starting to put more herbicide on the ground to sort of reduce that, that really heavy fuel load. Um, You know, one thing that that my department funded was going out on some of the right of, so there's like utility right of ways in the reserve, St. George city manages their power lines and things like that. So just using some of those existing disturbances on the landscape to put down herbicide on either side of them to try to hopefully use those as fire breaks if, not, if they don't completely um, halt the spread of a fire that's approaching those roads, hopefully at least giving firefighters more time to get there before the fire gets larger. Um, unfortunately, there's large areas that we don't have permission to put herbicide on the ground yet, um, on BLM lands, on, um, in the National Conservation Area, they are starting to work on some of their environmental processes to hopefully uh, be able to do that. But right now in a way, our hands are kind of tied with some of that stuff, but that's one of the major ways. I mean, probably, probably really the only way that we're really gonna get a grasp on the cheatgrass and the those invasive grasses. And we're, we're never gonna, more than likely barring some amazing scientific accomplishment, we're probably never going to completely get rid of that stuff. But if we can reduce it to the extent that we have a reduction in these huge fires that we've seen, I think that would be a pretty big accomplishment.
1: I'm actually, I'm actually going to ask a follow up, which is um, when I was in New Mexico, we had a huge fire that it burned so hot that it basically sterilized the top few inches of the soil. How does that contribute to those invasive species coming in?
3: That's a really good question. And one of the things with um, species like those invasive brome grasses is that they're incredibly resilient. And so if anything, I would say those sorts of conditions probably set up, you know, or those invasive grasses are probably still able to come back in, in many cases, but a lot of the native shrubs you know maybe some of the native annual species that aren't as adapted to those conditions are not able to come back as effectively and so those you know and we're, we're seeing areas where um, you know maybe areas that didn't quite burn as hot some of our native shrubs are starting to come back okay other areas that maybe burn hotter um, just still look like a moonscape out there and it's just, you know, probably going to be almost a, a cheatgrass monoculture when that comes back. So that, that's kind of what I would suspect for those ki- types of conditions, unfortunately. How long do you think it's going to be till the face of Red Cliffs will be back to where that natural habitat was that got burnt up this past year or the year before, just as a guesstimate? Yeah, it's it's so hard to say. I mean, it's it's very possible that it will never fully make a recovery because a lot of those native shrubs just don't do so well. They just, you know, they don't come back nearly as well as those invasives. And so, um, again, a lot of it's about limiting future fire, protecting some of the habitat that we habitat we currently have. And then there are habitat restoration efforts for seeding and outplanting projects. Most have been spearheaded by the BLM and Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. You know, maybe if it all goes well with those, maybe in 100 or 200 years, there could be something resembling like a full recovery. But honestly, it's, it's, it's really hard to make a prediction with that kind of stuff.
0: Is it always good to report a fire or is there a point where it's like big enough I could assume somebody else reported it? Yeah.
3: Oh, right? um, I mean, I, that's, I feel like, no, maybe it's, a better it's, a, question for the
4: it's always good to report a fire. Uh, if, if they're getting multiple reports, then they may be a little bit short with you on the, on the phone, you know, like, Hey, we already know about this, but always report the fire.
1: Yeah. So a lot of, uh, Especially, you know, outside of St. George, there's a lot of uh, kind of backyard burning. So how do you, is there a way to tell when is the right time to call in the backyard burning or if they have the right permits or how do you know if you should call in those type of things?
4: Uh, it, you know, if, if you suspect that there's a, there's a problem, then call it in. Um, you know, fire will go out there and check it out. I mean we've had uh, when I was on the apartment, we had barbecues called in. You know, people had their barbecues go in the backyard and things got a little hot. And and, you know, we would respond and if we were lucky they would invite us to stay for barbecue, but that didn't happen very often. But there's also been times when people didn't know their backyard was on fire. You know, or that their barbecue was actually out of control. So um, I mean, if you have a doubt and, and you want to knock on the door and say, hey, you got smoke in your backyard, what's going on? And like, oh, that's Bob burning. You know, that's, that's one thing. But, you know, don't hesitate to report any of that. You know, if you see smoke, say, make the call.
2: Uh, just to follow, I know most communities, most uh, fire departments, you, you do have to do some kind of permitting or that's at least true. notify them that that, that burning is, is going on. Yeah, you never know, like wind kicks up and it can start spreading or whoever's out there tending the fire doesn't you know stops paying attention so yeah anytime you you feel like something's off like yeah call it in um so my
3: question is uh that i remember that fire back in 2020 because i remember driving down the freeway and it was just like chewing up along the side of it and i was like that's gnarly um how was that fire like put out i i just remember like one day it just was gone and i was like
4: oh that that particular fire we actually had those fires um so, together, the Cottonwood fire that went up, um, the Cottonwood Trail fire, I think is what it was called. So it went up to Leeds. Um, we actually stopped it uh, right about Leeds, a little bit past Leeds. Um, and, and that was just, uh, you know, it was, a, it was kind of a crazy fire that we were just running to try to get ahead of. Um, I remember I was, uh, we had put the command post right in Leeds at the Southport part, and. That fire came right up to the backyards. Um, we had planes dumping um, retardant on houses and, um, and places in there. So effectively what we, what we did, and I say we, was the fire guys, but what we did is we kind of directed that fire to a, a kind of a choke point. Um, and we used terrain to be able to, to get it to where it was manageable and, and able to put it out. And we were just extremely lucky that it, that it followed where we wanted it to go. Um, had it gone up the hill further, um, or we hadn't got the retardant in the right spot, you know, we might've been looking at a different fire, uh, that, that went on top of Pine Valley or, or what upon on Barouse. So, uh, the fires are just, you just never know. You never know that sometimes they just, sometimes they do just go out, you know, all fires eventually go out what they burn in between. We don't know, but, um, you know, it's, it's, we have strategies, we have plans but even the best plans um, can fail. So um, sometimes we just get lucky.
3: Do you you mind if I add to that a little bit? Yeah, Yeah, I was just gonna add that I know with that, the Turkey Farm Road fire, the the larger of the two, um, as that fire was approaching the Green Springs community, I know they started doing very aggressive, retardant drops and Helicopter bucket drops on that fire which i think really sped up the suppression process on that one so of course anytime there's structures potentially threatened that's when kind of things really start to ramp up
4: and that you know that's one of the questions we get all the time is that why don't we just put a ton of airplanes on on these fires and just dump water and dump retirement and there's two different things that they do water Um, does put the fire out, but it doesn't have the super stopping capability that the retardant does. So what the retardant does is we don't usually put the retardant on the fire. We put it in front of the fire in hopes that we can provide that barrier so the fire won't burn through that, through those fuels. The water actually goes on top of the fire. So usually when the water gets put on the ground in front of the fire, the fire has enough BTUs or enough energy to burn through that, that water. And so that's, they're used two different ways. But the thing is, is that the cost on the, of using uh, aircraft to put out fires is enormous. It's, it's huge. And um, each one of those big, like 727s that come overhead that you see uh, in Green Springs and all these, we're seeing them a lot more. They're called VLATs. Most of those come out of either Salt Lake or, or Idaho or Phoenix. I I don't even know what the cost is now, but it's in the the $50,000, $60,000 range uh, for each drop. And so that puts those fires up in cost really, really quickly when we start dumping, you know, 10, 15 loads on these fires.
0: Listen next week for the continuation of the wildfire panel discussion. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Newsletter by Luke Williams. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah. And your support makes it possible.